I'll invite you to turn to Matthew chapter number 20 then this morning. And uh, if, if you're here and you don't have a Bible with you, if you find one of the Black Pew Bibles, I believe it's on page 774. You can find the passage there. And uh, Matthew 20. And uh, we will begin this morning by reading down through the first 16 verses of this passage. Love to hear you sing out Amazing Grace. I read recently, I think just a week or two ago, was I believe the 250th, maybe 300th. And it was anyway, some big anniversary of that hymn, and uh, and that's that's just a few hundred years of of history of God's people, and to think how many others uh, have sung that out, and we sing with them um, to sing of God's grace and to say, um, when we've been there, when we've been with Him a thousand years. Will no less days then to sing his praise than when we've begun. And what a thing to look forward to. And we're going to see God's grace in this passage today. So let me read, and you can follow along, Matthew 20, beginning in verse number one. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, He saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and he did the same. Well, about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what with what I choose what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we look at this passage today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for for your wonderful grace and your mercy. And Lord, uh, those are among so many things that, that cause us to see you as praiseworthy. And Lord, I pray that our, our voices, Lord, uh, whether feeble or strong, whether, whether rich or, or cracking, Lord, I pray that they would have risen up to you um, as a sweet sound of, of your children just singing to you. And now as we look at your word, Lord, would you, would you help us to see uh, the picture of this story that, that Jesus told, uh, the point of it? May we learn the lesson that is, it's teaching just as he was teaching to his disciples and Lord Jesus, I pray that, that we would see you in this passage as you really are the centerpiece of the whole scripture today. So work in our hearts, Lord, uh, open our hearts, soften us so that we can be obedient to you. And we pray this 
In Christ's name, amen. Okay, well, as we turn the page into Matthew 20 this morning, uh, we come to another one of the great parables of Jesus Christ. And uh, this one, again, has to do with the kingdom. And uh, you remember several months ago, we were in Matthew 13, and that whole chapter really was filled with parables about the kingdom. Uh, you remember the parable of the sower, the parable of the tares, the parable of, of growth uh, with the, the mustard seed and the yeast, the, the parable of, of hidden treasures like the pearl. And uh, of course, parables, again, are, are we, we might call them analogies or illustrations. They're stories that shed light on, on a big point. And uh, we spoke before how it's you can't really make up a, a whole teaching system or a doctrinal system around a parable um, because not every single detail of the story is, is meant to have a deeper meaning. But there is always at least and usually one big idea that the parable is teaching. Um, all of the important details shine light on, on one side of the coin. And really, all through Jesus' teaching, starting with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been, at least in, in Matthew, what he's recording, he's been holding up the idea of the kingdom of God as, as a gemstone, as a diamond. And with every parable, with every teaching, with the miracles, all that we see, it's, it's like him pointing light on one of the beautiful facets of that diamond, trying to get us to see just what he's talking about. And uh, we'll never have a perfect understanding, at least on this side of eternity, but these teachings are incredibly helpful. Um, this week, in this parable, Jesus is using it to illustrate what we looked at last week. Um, and the facet of the kingdom here is interesting because last week, if you remember, we saw four things that were used in the passage in the same way, in the same context, which helps us. Uh, we learned, we talked about salvation. We talked about gaining eternal life. We talked about entering the kingdom of God and entering the kingdom of heaven all those things, at least in general ways, were used synonymously. And we saw that. Unlike we would naturally assume, those things are all experienced now and in eternity. We saw that entrance into them or gaining them is impossible with man. That was kind of the big point of the story last week, the, the rich young ruler. We learned that the most qualified person, at least in our eyes, the most qualified person on earth is no closer to entrance into the kingdom of God or to gaining salvation than the littlest child who can't even offer the strength of his own arm. We remember Jesus said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, it's possible. And Jesus ended his teaching last week with a simple statement, and that was this, so that many who are first will be last and the last first. The story that Jesus is about to tell that we've just read is really to illustrate that statement. It's, it's to shine light on that truth about God's kingdom. Just before Jesus made that statement, though, Peter had asked a question, right? He said, Lord, uh, we've left everything in order to follow you. What, what will be ours because of that? In other words, Peter saw he and his, his associates, and he rightly understood that they had, they had done what Jesus had asked of the rich young ruler. They had held their livelihood and their possessions with an open hand, 
And when God came knocking and calling for it, they, they let it go because they knew it came from the Lord to begin with. But Peter's question, at least on the surface, gives us a little bit of the reason why Jesus would have told this story because his question, and we would have asked the same thing, had a, a tinge of, well, what have we earned because of this? What does God owe us because of what we've given up? But what we see in this story today is that God is no man's debtor. In, in other words, God doesn't owe anything. Jesus, he started to illustrate how that way, earning or wages, isn't the way that God's economy works by saying, you'll be exalted to the place of a judge and a ruler. Did they earn that? Well, no, of course not. And, and he who's given up will receive a hundred times what they've lost. Did they earn that? But in order to keep the disciples, again, from thinking it's all about wages, what, what do we get for what we've done? Jesus made that statement. Many who are last will be first. You see, in our mindset, maybe, maybe like Peter, we're conditioned into thinking in terms of, of wages. We're, we're conditioned into thinking in terms of, of cause and effect, of, of direct correlation. Peter, for instance, was a fisherman. Uh, a hardworking laborer who knew the price that he would get for each fish that he caught. He knew how much that could get him on the marketplace to buy bread and the sustenance for his family. And he had given up fishing to fish for men. So what would be the wages? What we see today is that God's kingdom does not work in wages like we think, but it works in grace. Wages can be measured against time and effort, but grace can only be measured in terms of God's character to give it out. And the statement, the last will be first, is very much a statement of grace without even using that exact word. For what is grace but to show kindness, to show favor to those who don't deserve it? That is exactly what God had done for each one of his disciples. It's exactly what God has done for each person in his kingdom. And though he calls for and requires us to be willing to give up much, his grace is not weighed on the scale against what we were able to do and give. Well, let's look at the story then. That's why we're here. And uh, the first point we see is, is really just that. It's a story, and it's a story to illustrate a saying. And go back to verse 1 and 2. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, much like the parable of the sower, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the kingdom is, is pictured in a setting of, of agriculture. Now, behind the, the basic staple of, of wheat... Grapes in this part of the world, in Israel, were probably one of the chief products of the ground. You had wheat, you had grapes, you had, you had many things. The, the Lord had given them a wonderful land, but grapes were a constant reminder of God's hand on them. Think of this. Uh, the psalmist uh, talks about the Lord's blessings in this way in Psalm 104. He says, you, speaking of the Lord, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and, and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. 
and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. All those blessings, the bread, which of course came from wheat, the oil, which came from, from the, the, uh, the olives that were there, and then the wine, which came from the grapes, were all seen as God's hand of blessing on the people. This idea of grapes as a picture of, of God's hand of blessing uh, is all throughout Scripture. And maybe the most memorable one would be in Exodus. You remember when Moses sent out the 12 spies into Canaan? And uh, one of the most amazing parts of the story was when the spies came into the region of Hebron, into a place that they would call the Valley of Eschol. And you remember they cut off a cluster of grapes that two men had to carry on a staff? Well, later on in, in Numbers 14, the report of that would be that, that the land was flowing with milk and honey. Now, it's not that they were actually walking in streams of milk and honey, but that was a picture that it was a blessed land, a, a fertile land, a, a joyful and sweet land. And for a group of people who had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, eating, eating manna and occasional quail and some water, well, a 100-pound cluster of grapes was a pretty good sight, wasn't it? Grapes are used all throughout Scripture to, to illustrate God's work as well. Uh, we won't read all these, but you might want to jot them down. In Isaiah chapter 5, uh, the prophet illustrates God's displeasure with his people by comparing them to, to wild grapes in his vineyard. In Isaiah 32, when there was a prophecy of a time of, of curse and captivity, Isaiah said the, the vintage has ended and the harvest will not come. That has to do with the grape harvest. And no harvest is an illustration of no blessing. The Psalm 80, verse number 8, to illustrate how God placed his people in their land, we read this. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. So God's people are seen as a vineyard that are planted by him. Uh, again, in Hosea chapter 9, uh, God speaks of his people as grapes. He says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit that grew on the fig tree in its season, I saw your fathers. God's people, he says, are like grapes that he's found, that he's planted, that he's cultivating. Fast forwarding, we even saw last year when we looked at Matthew 7, we even saw Jesus use the imagery of grapes to talk about true and false teachers. Listen to this, Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? We could go to a hundred more scriptures to, to talk about how the Lord uses this imagery. But to put simply, the image of grapes in vineyards were not just strong in the disciples' minds because they were all around them in their land. They were strong in their mind because God had described himself as the keeper of a vineyard all throughout the scripture. So then as we open this, all that was to say that we can safely say that Jesus is talking about God here. He is the master of a house. He is the chief vine dresser, we could say. And he is the king of the kingdom. 
and his kingship is, is over the vineyard and the people who are in it. And uh, we might even say that, like the parable of the sower, that the vineyard is, is the world as we might know it. That's less important for the story, but that's the picture. God is chief over this vineyard, and he's looking here for workers. He's calling workers. Now, the disciples were those because clearly Jesus was telling this story about the workers to answer Peter's question. But really, I think everybody who enters the kingdom truly is is one of these workers. And some workers, as we see in the story, have been there all along. We read that he went out early in the morning, which probably would have been six o'clock. And he agreed with some who were there waiting to work, and he he agreed with them for a day's labor. Uh, a denarius was, was simply that. It was a common day's labor rate. So at the very least, we see that God is, is very just. He makes an agreement. He, he makes no extortion. He's not asking them to be, to be uh, bond slaves. He, he's going to provide them a day's wages for a day's labor, and that's agreeable to them. And this first group of, of people come, and they work in his vineyard. What we read on then. In verse number three, and going out about the third hour, it says, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went going out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. Again, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went and he found others standing and said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because nobody has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. We'll pause there. So some have been there all along. Since six o'clock in the morning, they've been working. But, but some come along later. And there's much work to be done. And, and there's plenty of elbow room for everybody to get in there. So they are gladly hired also. Some, it says, at the third hour, which we would think of as as nine o'clock. They got to sleep in a little bit. (laughs) They wandered out of the house a little bit later, but they still got a pretty good day's work in. But some he found at the sixth hour. That's that's noontime. Um, And again, at the the ninth hour, which is three in the afternoon. And and finally, the eleventh hour, that's that's five o'clock. He found some who had had been working or had not been working all day. They were standing idle. And he asked them, why aren't you working? Nobody has hired us, they said. So he hired them too. Now we could have some fun making a, you know, thinking about all the different people who were hired at different times were doing, you know, maybe the people that hired at nine, they just slept in a little bit. Uh, The people at noon, well, maybe they had a dentist appointment that morning and they couldn't make it to the market on time. The three o'clock crowd, well, probably they were just a happy accident. Uh, Maybe they didn't want to be hired at all. (laughs) And uh, they just happened to cross paths with this really kind vineyard owner. And they said, okay, we'll go. But what about the 11th hour people? The five o'clock people? I, I mean, if they had been standing there all day, and when he asked them why, they said, nobody's hired us. Now, sometimes we take that as an excuse, but I don't know. They said, nobody's hired us. By their words, they wanted to be hired. Now, 
The fact that they were standing there all day wanting to be hired and nobody hired them could mean a couple things. Again, this is all just for the sake of illustration, but either there wasn't enough work to go around, which if it's the time of grape harvest, there was plenty of work to go around, or or nobody wanted to hire them. Maybe they had a reputation of, of laziness, or maybe people thought they were dishonest, or maybe they had a disability. Maybe they weren't as useful or as strong as, as the, the 6 a.m. people. Maybe they looked funny. Who, who knows? But they were left there all day waiting until finally this vine dresser comes, and he says, I know it's 5 o'clock, but you go to the vineyard too. I'll hire you too. Now, as I was thinking about this earlier this week, uh, we could illustrate this story with with our own experience as well. I could ask for a show of hands, who has ever played dodgeball? Okay, a few of you have played dodgeball. Um, I have played dodgeball. Um, Now, most of you have only known me for a couple years or so and didn't know me as a boy, but to, to make a short story even shorter, let's just say that I wasn't exactly as nimble as a cat as a boy. Uh, I may as well have been the dodgeball, actually, when I was a little kid. Now, I could throw the ball, no problem. I was a pitcher in baseball. That wasn't an issue. But when it when it came to dodging the ball, <laughs> it wasn't exactly a, a matrix moment, you know, where I, I slowly moved out of the way and the ball whizzed past. That wasn't me. So, in other words, I know what it's like to be picked last <laughs> to play dodgeball. Now, that's not as critical as as not being hired for a day's labor, but at least you got a laugh out of it. And uh, so what we have so far is, is God as a master vine dresser who has much work he wants done, and he's willing to hire just about anyone. Uh, now, the 6 a.m. people, they might have thought they were the pick of the litter. They were out there early. They were eager. They were ready, and they got it all day. They were working. But in God's economy, all kinds of people got a fair shake at working in the kingdom. Well, the story gets even more interesting, though, doesn't it? Because as we read again, we left on in verse 8, but we'll read it again. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more but each of them also received a denarius. Now, right here in the middle of the story, verse number eight, we see the the sort of key phrase again, at least in a form, beginning with the last, he paid them. In other words, the last will be first, but it's not so much about just that they, they got their paycheck first. This is interesting. You see, Only with the first group is any pay rate discussed. They agreed to a denarius, a fair day's wage. But what about the rest? Well, with the 9 a.m. people and the noon people and the 3 in the afternoon people, we don't see that conversation. With the the 9 a.m. people, we read that he just said, I'll give you what is right. What's interesting, though, about the 11th hour people is there's no mention of pay at all. Now, that might be just because the story was getting too long, but think about this. 
We've talked before uh, about the idea and the, the, the element in the Jewish law about gleaning and uh, how the little leftovers were left in every crop for the, for the poor, the destitute, to come out and gather each day for their own sustenance. We, we see that maybe uh, principally in the book of Ruth. But uh, we've, when we think about these 11-hour people who've been waiting all day to be hired, at this point, when he said to them, go into the vineyard, Maybe they just thought he was giving them an opportunity to glean the leftovers. I mean, the day's work is all done. They're just cleaning up at this point. Maybe they thought, well, we'll go pick the grapes that the birds had pecked at or those which weren't as full, or maybe they had already become raisins on the vine. But what happens when the foreman gives out the first paycheck, starting with these 11th hour people? They get a full day's pay. A full day's wages, not just leftover raisins or, or the grapes that fell on the ground. No, a, a whole denarius. Something they certainly never imagined. I mean, they hadn't even had time to do anything. They, they showed up and everybody was punching their time card. But they got a whole day's pay. Now, as he, he goes down the line, of course, you know how the wheels turn. As, as these 11th hour people are rejoicing and, and exclaiming about their denarius, a whole denarius for an hour's work. Then the others hear that and they think, well, surely we're going to get more. I mean, if they've been here an hour and got a denarius, well, I've been here 12 hours. Some pretty quick math. They thought at least, you know, they were going to get more than their fair shake. If they, be, if they barely made it to the factory before the conveyor belt turned off for the evening, what about those of us who've been here since before the coffee was brewed? Now, by the time they got to them, as the foreman came down the line and everybody got a denarius, and by this time, the, the first people were grumbling. How can you pay us all the same? Those guys over there have only been here one hour. They haven't been through the heat of the day. They haven't been through the, the, the toil and the grime and the, they haven't earned it. Look at verse 13 though. But, but he, the, he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Wow, what an answer. Friend, I have been more than fair with you. I did you no injustice. Have I withheld anything from you that I've promised? And further, can't I choose what to do with my own money? Or does my generosity taste like Sour grapes to you. Which leads us again to a saying, this time a saying that illuminates the story. We read in verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. As Jesus repeats this story, now he's, he's bookended it. Uh, that last verse of chapter 19, the end of the story, and then we saw it kind of in in story form in verse number eight. As Jesus repeats this, it's been set up now 
by the last question in the parable. Do you begrudge my generosity? Now, immediately you're wondering or thinking, how, how do we apply this? What does this have to do with us? Or, or all kinds of those questions. Maybe you're scratching your head a bit. That's okay. But let's think about a couple of scriptural examples of this, this kind of question. Do you begrudge my generosity? Well, let me read to you from Jonah chapter 4. This is at the end of Jonah when God was sitting up on the hill waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed, even though they'd repented and, and God had given Jonah the, the gourd that grew up and then it died and he's upset and we find Jonah. And God says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah had a lesson to learn that was much like this parable, a lesson about God's character of mercy and grace, mercy and grace that God chose to give even to wicked Nineveh who repented. But Jonah had a problem with that. You see, Jonah was thinking in terms of wages. And the Ninevites' wages in Jonah's eyes and in reality should have only been wrath. But they got grace and mercy instead. Jonah thought in wages, but God, he deals in grace. How about another scripture? You know the story in Luke 15 about the prodigal son? Well, we call it that, but the parable is really about the father, the merciful and gracious father who loved both of his sons and showed grace to the one who ran away. Well, what was the response when the wayward son came home? We can't read the whole thing for sake of time, but pick it up in verse 23. The father said, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this, your son of yours, came, who has devoured your property, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now we see a little bit of Jonah and that older brother, don't we? I've stayed here these many years and never disobeyed. This other son of yours deserves nothing but shame. Where's my fatted calf? Where's my party? 
And if we see it in the older brother and in Jonah alike, then I think we also see it in the 6 a.m. people in our story as well. They were thinking in terms of wages. But God didn't deal in wages with Jonah. God didn't deal in wages when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. But in grace. Now, how can we possibly apply all this? Because so far, all we've done is try to understand the story. Well, I think there's a couple ways. I think there, there's a big way uh, that's, that stretches back throughout Scripture, and I think there's smaller ways that are helpful on our daily day or day-to-day lives. In the big picture, I think this is a parable that was meant to prepare the Jewish disciples, the original audience, like Peter, who asked the question, to prepare them for what they would see in the coming days as other people came into the kingdom. Now, these other people might have been other Jewish disciples who were just later than they were, or they might have been, and turns out they would be, the Gentiles, the outsiders. You see, that was the story of Jonah, wasn't it? Jonah had no category of mercy for these wicked Ninevites who destroyed his people, who despised God and his law. Jonah had no category of grace in his mind for them. He only could think of the wages. But God could give grace. Now, do you remember those 11th hour people in the story? Do you know who that is? That's you and me. In the big picture of God's story of redemption, you and I are the 11th hour people. You see, the original agreement, that was with Moses and the people of his day, the people who God had made the promises to, the ones who God gave the law and the blessings and the covenant. Now, those things might have involved work, but they were still very much grace. You see, God didn't have to give grace to Noah when he destroyed the earth. He did, and God told him to build the ark, but it was grace that he told him at all. God didn't have to give grace to Abraham by calling him from his country. Now, it may have required Abraham to leave and and sojourn, but it was grace that God blessed him and made him the father of the faithful. In the same way, God didn't have to give grace to Moses and the slaves of Israel in Egypt, but he did, and he brought them out. And he gave them the promises and the law and the covenant and the blessings. They were the first hour people, so to speak, in the big picture. They were the 6 a.m. people. Now think of it this way. Noah knew it was grace when he received it. Abraham knew it was grace when he received it. And Moses knew it was grace. But by the time we snake our way down through history and get to the disciples, There is a human tendency to quickly forget what is grace and to begin thinking of it as wages. So the first hour people, in this case, the Jewish people, some of them had begun to think that by the end of the day when Jesus came, that it was not so much grace but wages, that, that God somehow contractually owed them. 
And furthermore, that these others who were coming in, they haven't earned it. Now, of course, listen, that was not every Israelite's mindset. Many of them who who had a a soft heart and and quickly accepted the, the grace of the Lord did not think that way. But for some, it certainly was. Peter struggled with that. Even after Jesus departed, he struggled with that in the book of Acts, which is why that book goes to great lengths to, to tell how Peter had to be convinced that the Gentiles were allowed in. Jonah exhibited that, a prejudice, a pride, a sense of entitlement or ownership. But God doesn't work in wages. And God is the only one with true ownership. He works in grace. Now, that's the big picture, the whole story of God's redemption. That's that's the point of that parable. But what, what about for us, though? Well, this story for us shows how wonderful and undeserving we are of what we get. You see, we are the 11th hour people, but we get the whole blessing. We weren't around for the original contract, but we get the whole paycheck. We didn't even have any part in the old covenant, but we're brought into the new covenant and given all the same blessings of life and peace and salvation and eternal joy by grace. God doesn't work in wages, and we should be glad For we read later on in scripture that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, dear one, how you and I, we were the misfit ones hanging around at five o'clock that nobody wanted to hire. We were the last to be picked for the dodgeball game. We were the ones hoping to to glean some of the dried up raisins on the ground from God's vineyard. But instead, he brought us in and made us one of his very own. We weren't even hoping for wages. God skipped right over the wages and gave us the whole blessing. Now, that's the picture. Uh, That's the main picture that we're to see. We can bring it even smaller than that. You see, some of us, some of you, have been Christians for for 50, 60, 70 years. And you know how human flesh works. You know that your flesh and the devil would love nothing more for you to think in terms of wages rather than of grace. The devil would love us to think that God owes us And more than that, our flesh and the devil would love for us to to look at some struggling Christian, some young Christian, and say, they aren't even in the same category as me. But that's wages. That's not grace. You see, a person who's been a believer for one year has the same claim on the kingdom of God as someone who's been a believer for 80 years. A Christian who's brand new and still struggling with the basics or struggling with some trivial little temptation has the same claim on eternal life and and, and, uh, and eternal 
work in God's vineyard as a faithful Christian who who doesn't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. The little child, think of think back to chapter 19, the little child who with simple faith and childlike trust follows Jesus in their own little way, with their own little steps, with their own little understanding, they have the same claim on God's kingdom as a theologian with two PhDs and a long list of books that they've written. The layman has the same claim on the kingdom as a pastor does. The, the tattooed young adult has the same claim as the sweet elderly grandma. All those other comparisons are wages. But God doesn't work in wages. He works in grace. And this is true both now and it's true in eternity. Think of Jesus' words again to the disciples. Those who've given up will receive 100 times, both now and in the age to come. And it's also true in eternity in this way. Uh, Think of the thief on the cross. If we could claim that anybody had no chance at all to, to earn their keep as a follower of Jesus, it was that guy. He died moments after he met the Lord. Yet he had the same promise that we all do. You will be with me, Jesus said. Aren't you glad that God works not in wages, but in grace? And as we consider grace and how the Lord works that way, we must look quickly at verses 17 through 19, because this is a prophecy that Jesus gives that really indicates the bigger picture of where this is all going. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. This little glimpse, now Jesus keeps giving these little glimpses of of his passion to come. This little glimpse was the grace that Jesus was talking about in the binoculars. It was the fullness of grace that would be displayed very shortly. Now it was all grace, the teaching, the miracles, the parables, the feedings. It was all grace, but soon to come. The disciples would see this grace poured out as Jesus would take a punishment that they had earned and pay for it. Jesus would take wrath that humanity has incurred and he would drink that cup. Jesus would would take shame and scorn that the lowliest beggar couldn't even imagine. Jesus would take the wages of our sin and cover them. Why? Because God's kingdom does not work in wages, but in grace. God is no man's debtor. He pays his children not what they have earned, but what he freely and lovingly desires to give by his grace. 
so the last will be first. And the first, the last. Lord, may we see this uh, in our own eyes. May we, may we be driven to humility by the fact that, that we're the 11th hour people. But we got the whole blessing. Lord, you, you've been working with your people for centuries, for millennia. And here we are, Johnny come lately. Yet we get the whole paycheck by grace. And may we see, Lord, as, as, as new believers come in, they, they may be infants in their faith. But they get the whole paycheck too. Lord, would we, would we run away from a, a, an entitlement or a I've earned it mentality? And would we stay right there in a, a, a state of blessed thankfulness for your grace, Lord? And would we also have the same humility as well as we look at others? Would we not, uh, would we not look at man on the outside and, and prefer those who the world would prefer, Lord? But would we see with your eyes? for other 11th hour people like us with compassion. Lord, use this scripture in our lives in whatever way that each person needs. Would you, would you hone it right down to the very core? And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.